politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, scorned and forgotten taxpayers yearning to be free to the one and only CR podcast here at Blaze TV, your only source of independent conservative news and views with Daniel Horowitz here on Thursday, November 19th. November 19th, a very special day, a special week as we commemorate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing at Plymouth Rock. The official landing date was really the 18th and they disembarked over the next few days, and the week before they landed, they crafted the Mayflower Compact, the first governing document from which some of the respective state bills of rights and the eventual uh, Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights in the Constitution were crafted. It's also the 157th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln delivering the Gettysburg Address. Harking back to those principles of the Declaration of Independence, really the principles of the Mayflower Compact, but just rectifying that one flaw of slavery, the one chink in that armor of freedom, liberty, equality. And I look ahead towards the time we live in and time that we're headed into. And I'm thinking of the juxtaposition of those two. The settlement, the discovery of a new continent and the formation of a new civil society built upon a compact, a social contract. And the example of the breakup of that contract that occurred during the Civil War. And where we are now where we had a bloodless coup against that contract for a number of decades, and now we're the ones left on the outside looking in. We're the ones that had our heritage, our legal social contract taken away from us, our equality taken away from us. And now we wonder, what do we do? Do we have a civil war? Do we try to form our own compact? And I think it's really more the latter. We need our own Mayflower Compact. Now, just to go over a little bit of history before we get into the news, William Bradford, who eventually became the governor of the Plymouth Colony, he described those days, quote, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. And if you think about what we're commemorating, it was a time of peril, but also of overcoming different obstacles in life, perseverance, faith, liberty, democracy, religious and civil liberty. The founding of America was all embedded in in that Mayflower and that Mayflower Compact. John Quincy Adams in 1802 described that Mayflower Compact 
as, quote, the first example in modern times of a social compact or a system of government instituted by voluntary agreement, comfortable by the laws of nature, I'm sorry, conformable by the laws of nature, by men of equal rights and about to establish their community in a new country. And really, that did influence the Declaration of Independence, the concept of not being ruled by a king, but people getting together in a new area and understanding, on the one hand, we have liberty, we have rights that cannot be infringed upon. On the other hand, we have to have ordered liberty, where you have to have some sort of governing authority of and among the people to ensure you don't have anarchy and, um, you know, just like a king could infringe upon your liberty, so anarchy could infringe upon liberty. People could steal and maim. And that was the budding of an understanding of proper governance, proper rights that became enshrined eventually in the Massachusetts Constitution and Bill of Rights, the State Bill of Rights, and eventually the National Declaration and Federal Constitution. It's truly sad to think how Massachusetts was once a beacon of freedom. They were the first in freedom, first in liberty, first in patriotism. What has become of that state is truly sad. But where do we stand now? Where do we stand now? We live in a time of ubiquitous lying by the political elite censorship. Almost like the superstition of the Middle, middle Ages, the Dark Ages. So yesterday, we had this mass study. The only randomized controlled trial, 6,000 people. It's a large study. And they showed that there was just a 0.28% lower infection rate among the group wearing a mask, which demonstrates that, again, it's just random. Statistically, it's insignificant because, you know, if you have two groups, you're going to have a deviation no matter what. So it could be less effective. It could be slightly more. You don't know. But actually, there's an interesting nugget in that study. I just wanted to note that I did not put in my article and kudos to Dr. Andy Bostom for pointing this out to me. They had a subset of the study among those who reported wearing face masks, quote, exactly as instructed, as opposed to, quote, predominantly as instructed. The proportion infect- infected rose from 1.8% to 2%. So in other words, there was actually a slightly higher... So while there was a very tiny reduction or lower rate of infection among those that wore masks, there was actually a greater rate of infection among those who wore the masks exactly as instructed as opposed to those who wore it only mostly as instructed. So that works the other way. So again, it just shows that it's literally zero correlation. And this is what we're seeing with lockdowns, country by country, state by state analysis. Um, there is literally... Zero correlation. An interesting study was done by French researchers. And they found a similar thing with lockdowns. Higher COVID-19 mortality rates are mostly found in countries experiencing higher life expectancies. 
and showing a recent slowdown of the progression. Most of these developed and aging societies are latitudinally located over the 25th parallel. They now expose populations to higher vulnerabilities to both infections or physical constraints. During a pandemic situation, the foremost indicator of countries' health fragility may be seen in the proportion of older people given the ineluctable diminished performance and resilience with age. In other words, part of the thing is we've noticed a lot of third world countries aren't having many deaths. Well, part of that is because they don't have many old people because they die of other things. The highest proportion of elderly people are observed in countries with higher life expectancies. Such nations may suffer from higher mortality levels when new aggressors appear. Regarding government's actions, no association was found with the outcome suggesting that the other studied factors were more important in the COVID mortality than political measures. And we've seen this all along. It's latitude, it's seasonality, it's obesity, it's age. It does what it does and there's nothing you can do other than making it worse and making people die from the collateral damage. We're destroying your society's education, the developmental and behavioral um, changes in children as a result of the lockdowns, the masking, all of this for a lie. And you know what's funny? So initially, the New York Times had a headline that said, and I have a screenshot of it, thanks to John Ziegler for sending this to me. So basically... They had a headline straight up, very simple, Danish study questions use of masks to protect wearers. Then later on, they modified it to say, they added a sentence to it, you need to wear them anyway. (laughs) And that is really the story of the time we live in. There is a new religion, and that is the religion of tyranny, the cult of the cloth, the cult of Corona fascism. Transgender science. In Pennsylvania, we have people saying, the health director saying, you must wear a mask in your home, emanating from the mouth of a man who thinks he's a woman. These are the times we live in. And the question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? And we're all struggling with this. But as I've noted, we are going to have to rebel, and that's going to first require us to slay the golden calves, the false idols, the false hopes. Look, I was on Mark Levin last night. I wrote a very detailed article making the case that Georgia was done fraudulently. I'm making the most robust case out of almost anyone around for state legislators to pick up the call and fix the election. I'm not going to move away from that, and I'm going to continue reporting on that. But the bottom line is, as I noted at the end of yesterday's show, Scott Atlas appears to have been pushed out. He was one of the real promising bright lights of a potential second term of this Trump administration. This tyranny is happening and has happened under Trump's presidency. So if you're going to put all your hope into that, you're missing the point. You need to slay the false idol of the Republican Party. It's going to take picking one state or maybe one or two states and particular areas of that state where we have an American sanctuary 
If we can't do it in places that Trump carried by 30 to 50 points, then it's really our fault. There's no reason we can't do that. Where you get a hold of all the local county officials, the sheriff, and you make it clear this is what what we're doing. We make our stand. We have a declaration of rights and principles that becomes the envy of other people in other states and counties, as was the case with Massachusetts. The settlement of our continent started in Massachusetts, and then the rebellion against the British control and the impetus for the American Revolution in the 1760s, 1770s, began in Massachusetts, but other states and colonies joined in. That's what needs to happen. We have to get off this, how many Senates are are Republicans going to win? How many Senate seats? The Republican Party is even worse because it's a false flag operation. Think about the fact Republicans just elected Liz Cheney as the conference chair, re-elected her. She exemplifies the distorted priorities of the Republican Party that at a time of the worst anarchy and tyranny, the worst gross violation of the social compact, where government is not protecting us from criminals, is actively encouraging criminals, while criminalizing our way of life. Criminalizing living itself. And taking actions under the guise of protecting us to kill people. And we're going to go through as much of this as we can today. But folks, we have to recognize at at a time like this, people like Liz Cheney don't care about that. All they care about is Afghanistan. Let me tell you something. I received a heartfelt email from a listener to this show, Dominic, in Tampa. Okay, this is in Florida. Now, Hillsborough County has really gone south on us. And it's become more Democrat. But even in Florida... We have tyrannical counties, <clears throat> and this, this is where we need the state legislature to adopt my Declaration of Rights. And he talked about a episode that he experienced, with, which mirrors what I had with my son at a dentist's office. I wanted to share a story about a mask episode I had at my five-year-old daughter's dentist office a few weeks back. Here in Hillsborough County... We've had a mask mandate since June 22nd. I love Governor DeSantis, but he has let these localities get away with absolute unchecked tyranny. It's a 5-2 to two vote every time the moron commissioners meet in their retarded Zoom sessions. Because, of course, the masks they promote work so well that they can't meet in, per- in person. <laughs> people here just blindly accept it, and most people don't fight back. I'm not one of those people. I've already been thrown out of a health food uh, grocer. For not wearing a mask. My daughter needed a couple of cavities filled. The dentist's office requires masks, temperature checks, and the office is now an obstacle course because of plastic partitions and social distancing. When she had her last filling done, I had to wait in my car as usual because four-year-olds don't need their parents around when having their major dental work done, of course. And I didn't realize I had her mask in my pocket. They called and told me she was done and to bring her mask. I walked in and she wasn't up front waiting for me like usual. 
They said they couldn't allow her up front without a mask. <laughs> I stormed back to the treatment area, and she had a mouthful of these long cotton tubes to keep her from sucking on her numb lip. There was no way in hell I was putting a mask on her. I never put a mask on her. We even pulled her out of school because of the voodoo measures they were going to inflict on the kids, and now I am a stay-at-home dad teacher. I carried her up front, and they demanded I put her mask on. I lost it on this unassuming receptionist. How would you feel if you had to put a mask on in this condition? She's four years old. She's not sick, and she's not a carrier of any deadly disease. Everything you're doing is theater, and you all need to wake up because this crap will never go away until we all fight back. Her response was, quote, it's not my mandate. I paid and stormed out of there. My daughter knows I despise the masks, and she said thank you for not putting the mask on me. What the hell are people so afraid of? And why are there so many people that repel truth and reason? I don't think it's the virus. I think they're afraid of standing up for themselves and their liberties because they don't understand what true liberty means. It's pack mentality. I also think many of are afraid of public shaming. You're exactly right when you say we need our own Boston Tea Party moment. I think it's coming. And it'll be a moment nobody would have ever foreseen. Fear has gotten us nowhere. And I just want to say thanks for all you do to promote liberty, America, and truth. Well, thank you, Dominic, for sharing your story. And more importantly, for having the guts to stand up and having the testicular fortitude to defend your four-year-old daughter from child abuse. Where are the men? And that obviously resonates with me because I pulled my kids out as well. And folks, we need our own Mayflower Compact. We need our own Boston Tea Party moment. We need people to stand up. You know, I just want to deviate a little bit from the narrative today, from some of the news on the virus we're going to get to by just sharing one sundry piece of news here. Because it's just simply because we were talking about the Mayflower Compact. Do you know a federal judge just said that Trump cannot deport any UACs, unaccompanied alien children? So at a time when you and I as citizens do not have redress in the courts to walk freely without a Chinese diaper over our lungs, to school our children, to open a business, to pursue happiness, And remain in a state of liberty unrestrained. Illegal aliens, but not just any illegal aliens. The very teenagers that are self-trafficked by their families to come into our country and trespass on our rights. That have grown the ranks of MS-13 and have endangered our security. That have paid drug traffickers and have joined drug trafficking organizations themselves. They have more protection in the courts than we do. And folks, the the entire concept of the Mayflower Compact is that the people who start the society, only they get to decide on issues of governance. Only they get to have representatives to make the laws. And now criminals can break into our country and make laws against our will and against our general welfare. Again, revolutions were fought over much less. But I digress. Let's go back to the news. So, 
What's interesting, what's going on here, is that by overstating the threat level of the virus, by fabricating our ability to arrest its spread, we're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy in data and obsessing about it to a point where the data is exaggerated and fabricated. And that, number one, is used as a pretext to shut down our liberty. And number two, it in itself induces and impels policies that kill more people that don't have to die. But on the other hand, save not a single life. So let's go through some of the stories we have based on this theme. There's a lot here. I'm not going to have time to get to all of it. Maybe we'll continue it tomorrow. But let's start off with the hospitalization data. So we talked about yesterday with Todd Benzman how one-way hospital, hospital data is being inflated, at least in a state like Texas, is because illegal aliens or... Mexican nationals, legal, uh, you know, people with green cards are able to come over and utilize our hospitals. And then those numbers are then being used as a benchmark to shut down our liberty. We can't have liberty because we're told that will create a run on the hospitals as if somehow these voodoo measures could even change that. But yet foreign nationals can come right in straight to the hospitals with COVID. So another interesting thing, as I note in my article today in George Washington's Republic, the contours of fundamental rights and the scope of governmental authority and power are defined by fixed natural law given by nature's God and by our constitution and the respective state constitutions and declarations of rights, like in my state of Maryland. But most states have have a declaration of rights, usually at the beginning of their state constitution. But now in the new America, the new dystopian America of Anthony Fauci and all these subhuman bastards that are his equivalent on a state level, those rights and powers are defined not by the Constitution and natural law. They are defined by case and hospitalization data. So if we feel the data is too high, you don't have any rights. But the point is that data is all tainted. And I wrote an article today And thanks for the help with the research from some of our friends at Rational Ground. Terrific folks there. There are three additional ways they're inflating the data. So first off, I've written two articles this week and last week just giving some historical context for the data itself. Even if you look at the data, the numbers aren't higher than a typical flu season in terms of the percentage of bed capacity that are taken up in 90% of the country. Okay, so that, that in itself is a lie, and it's only 4.7% higher than the three-year average, which includes non-flu season as well. But the numbers themselves are inflated, and there's three very important things. One is, they're now counting observation beds. Okay? So part, part of why, yes, there is a spread that occurs naturally, in the fall, which in itself shows there's nothing we can do about it anyway, so the data is worthless, like what are you going to do with it? But there's an exaggerated effect that began on October 22nd 
I'm sorry, October 6th, HHS updated its guidance that said you must include those in observation beds. Okay, so these are the people that come in. Basically, what's happening is you do have, like we said, a small portion of people, mainly at the end of their life, that get critically ill. They're in the ICUs from this, and they have it. But but most of the people even hospitalized, they get a bad flu, they get fever, but they're not in danger, and it's really subclinical. Some cases may be borderline clinical level. It's not like a matter of people like just um, bombarding the hospitals like on their deathbed for the most part. So the thing with these people is that we have decided as a nation to treat COVID in the hospital. Like what's typically would be done at home or in a doctor's office. The bar for hospitalization is very low. Because, and again, this is self-fulfilling, because you panic over it and obsess about it and want to quantify everything, and then they get paid more for it. So that all creates both a carrot and a a stick incentive for hospitals to go and just liberally admit people and then count people. So partly why you see an uptick is that starting in October is because starting in October, they included observation beds which is a lot of the people, which is something they did not include beforehand. Remember, it's a pyramid. The largest percentage of people are asymptomatic. Then above that are mildly symptomatic. Above that, very symptomatic, but clearly not you know, the level you're going to go to an ER. And then, then you get to the hospitalization level, but among that, it's also a pyramid that the largest, largest percentage are the people that are kind of like observational bed level. And obviously, the the smallest level would be the people in the ICUs. Now, maybe you'll think, well, that's just technical guidance to the hospitals. It won't make a difference. Well, no, here's another factor. Beginning around the same time, CMS put out a memo to all hospitals that accept Medicare and Medicaid, which is all of them, very sternly warned them, failure to report the specified data needed to support broader surveillance of COVID-19 may lead to the imposition of a remedy to terminate a provider's participation from the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Now, as you well know, government has destroyed healthcare in America and has basically created a self-fulfilling vicious cycle that everyone's dependent on Medicare and Medicaid. I don't don't mean everyone, but more than 50% of the country. So, you know, if you're in the business, you you gotta deal with that. They threatened to cut off Medicare and Medicaid. Now think about it for a minute. You're a hospital. There's a religious obsession with counting COVID very liberally. You get reimbursed a higher rate for the higher numbers of COVID you have. And on the other hand, you're threatened with cutting, you know, a termination of funds for Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement if you don't properly quantify and report this data the way they're asking you to do so did it ever occur to you that in all the other epidemics we've had like the 2018 flu which the hospital numbers at least so far were higher there did it ever occur to you we never had such a system in place so if you would have had this system in place then the numbers back then would have been much much higher so that's one point of context that's not being um talked about enough The next thing is remdesivir. Remdesivir, as we've talked about, is garbage. 
The largest WHO study showed it is absolutely a swindle. It's a ripoff. $3,000 a pop. It doesn't do anything. It totally doesn't work. But the perception is that's everything. That's the only drug approved by the FDA. Remdesivir is king. Government has gone through all lengths to discredit um, hydroxychloroquine wrongly. Likewise, they've gone through all measures to pave the way for remdesivir. So one of the things they did is they, um, and again, this is, explains the timing of the uptick in hospital, hospitalizations on October 22nd. So the timing is very important, is when they approved it. And what they did is they cut out what's called a, um, basically, it, part of the certification for you know drugs and everything is hospitals, when they use it, they have to produce a utilization review plan. So CMS waived that requirement for remdesivir because, you know, of course, <laughs> the crony capitalism going on there. And Fauci and all those people are tied into remdesivir. So because of that, it necessitates hospital admission. They have to have them under observation for at least three days. So really, a lot of these people, hey, you know, like they have symptoms, they have a cough, they have maybe a fever for a day or two, and they're scared. They don't want it to get worse, but most cases, it's not going to get worse. It's like anything else that in the past you wouldn't have gone to the hospital for. The doctor would give you a prescription. Well, here, the only thing on the, on the market is remdesivir. Well, in order to get that, you have to be hospitalized. And again, that ties into the first point. It's a win-win because that's the way they get their remdesivir. And for the hospitals, they get more reimbursement and more numbers out of admission to, to, to observation beds. So the, the two factors kind of tie together. So again, clearly a lot of the people being admitted typically historically for, for symptoms of that level would not have gone to the hospital, and w- or if they would have, they would have been dismissed from the ER and they wouldn't have been admitted. Then there's the third factor, which is car accidents and heart attacks become COVID patients. So North Dakota and Iowa are the only states that basically decipher and distinguish those hospitalized because of COVID, they came because you know they had trouble breathing versus those that came because they got into a car accident, they broke their arm, they had a kidney stone, they had abdominal pain, they had a stroke, they had heart attack. And then what do they do? Well, any living organism that enters the hospital, they get tested for COVID. Now, we all agree that this is a period of widespread community spread, but it's a case-themic most are nothing. Very few are, are you know, acute. So obviously, if you have a population in, in hospitals in a given county of 10, 20,000 people, well, guess what? A good number of them, you know, hundreds of them will test positive. So it's not a COVID case. It's a kidney stone case. It's a heart attack. It's a car accident. So now North Dakota and Iowa, they decipher, they distinguish the two groups. They actually do um, separate them out. And the differential is about 25%. So I was thinking that you have to take 25% off 
the the numbers you're seeing. What is that? Like 70,000 nationwide COVID hospitalizations? Well, guess what? The Miami Herald reported yesterday in Miami-Dade County, out of 898 patients who tested positive in Miami's public hospitals last week, 52% of them, more than half, were admitted, quote, for other reasons, largely to emergency rooms without typical COVID-19 signs. In other words, more than half of those now recorded as COVID in Miami-Dade, and you wonder if this is true elsewhere, are really admitted for anything from car accidents to heart attacks. And Florida is not one of the big states now with spread. They have it like everyone else, but it's not huge because they had a big wave in the summer. So certainly in a place like Wisconsin, um, Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, that didn't have much before. So now they're getting their main wave coinciding with the universal seasonal spread of the fall. So it's more likely that a big part of those people, like, oh my gosh, it's going crazy in these places. It's You could easily posit that more than 50% of them are not real COVID patients. Again, imagine if we did this with the flu. Tested every last human being every flu season. Not just for the flu, but anyone any for anything who comes to the hospital. Do you know how many flu patients you'd have? And remember, there is a significant element of asymptomatic flu some estimate 30 to 50 percent of all people get the flu every year get it asymptomatically don't even know and again that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy of a hospital crisis because if you treat it like the flu you're like okay we be we're, we're gonna be careful we're gonna treat it whatever but if you treat it like the bubonic plague oh my god people are gonna die so you go crazy and you try to quantify each thing and you exaggerate it and then the more people you discover who have it that you wouldn't even know or care about, so then they have to be quarantined as patients, and then the doctors and the nurses have to be quarantined, and so you have staff shortages. So we don't really have a, a, a bed crisis. I mean, everyone agrees to that because none of the field hospitals are being used, but it's a logistical problem. It's a logistical thing of having enough space to quarantine people in the way we're saying we need to quarantine them. We're, you know, at this point, like, it's not worth it. But I mean, if you did this with the flu every year, you, you know how many hospital staff would have the flu and you don't even realize it and they're working anyway? We never did this before. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So just remember, when you hear numbers that are now being used to determine our ability to school our children, open our businesses, Go to church, enjoy fresh air or entertainment, or even celebrate Thanksgiving with your family. It's all built on data that is utter garbage. That's what we have there. But connected to that, connected to this principle, to overstating the severity of something, completely not just overstating, but fabricating your entire ability to stop it anyway, and then therefore creating policies that create collateral deaths that are man-made that don't need to happen. I present you an AP story, brand new, came out just a couple hours ago. Not just COVID, nursing home neglect deaths surge in shadows. When COVID-19 tore through Donald Wallace's nursing home, he was one of the few lucky to avoid infection. He died a horrible death anyway. Hell 
and happy before the pandemic, the 75-year-old retired Alabama truck driver became so malnourished and dehydrated that he dropped to 98 pounds and looked to his son like he'd been in a concentration camp. Septic shock suggested an untreated urinary infection. E. coli in his body from his own feces hinted at poor hygiene and aspiration pneumonia indicated Wallace, who needed help with meals, had likely choked on his food. As more than 97,000 of the nation's long-term care residents have died in a pandemic that has pushed staffs to the limit, advocates for the elderly say a tandem wave of death separate from the virus has quietly claimed tens of thousands of more lives. And by the way, I would note that a lot of those deaths are, are included already in the COVID count wrongly. And of course, they get reimbursed for it. This, this, this is the sick circular logic. Now, look, we all agree that this is dangerous to people at the end of their life. But folks, it's kind of the end of their life. This COVID is among the many things that typically kill them anyway. And there's nothing you can do. Again, this is not a 75-year-old uh, who was slated to live to 90 dying at 75. Usually, it's a 75-year-old who is going to die at 75 or maybe at 76. And I have another data point on that I'm going to point out in a, in a, in a minute. But this is sick. These the extra deaths are roughly 15% more than you'd expect in nursing homes. Already facing tens of thousands of deaths each year. Nursing homes have turned into concentration camps, folks. Yes, to people in nursing homes, it's a problem. But are you going to take the final five months of their life, life, that's the median stay among those who ultimately die in nursing homes every year, are you going to make their life a living hell in the process? And the funny thing is, we're seeing COVID spread even with the most severe lockdown you can imagine in nursing homes. You know, this is long after the whole Cuomo, you know, sending positive patients back in. That was that was in the spring. Had, had a nursing home deaths occur later on? Well, the answer is a lot of them aren't even COVID. They're lockdown deaths, but the virus spreads. The microbiology is so phenomenal, there's nothing you can do about it. They're giving us this pseudo-religion that you have a moral responsibility to stop COVID. You're a murderer if you don't do it. No, bastard, you're a murderer for creating a man-made plague in exchange for a God-made plague that there's nothing you can do about anyway. And the God-made plague is mainly life expectancy. And let me punctuate that with this point. Let me preface it. So there's a study out of Norway, although I think it was a joint study from Norwegian and Swedish researchers. Very interesting study. Um, just came out last week. It's a preprint. It's in, it's in Medirex IV. Mortality in Norway and Sweden before and after the COVID outbreak, a cohort study. So basically, a lot of people have noted that while Sweden has done much better than the large European countries in America in terms of mortality rates, and surprisingly well to those who think lockdowns work, given that they haven't had a lockdown, 
People note that if you look at the neighboring Norway, which you would think would be more of a apt comparison to Sweden than, let's say, you know, Spain, Italy, or France, or Belgium, they had much fewer COVID deaths. But this study points out basically what I've been telling you guys all along, is that the deaths are mainly a function of, you have to look at a five-year average. Deaths aren't, they don't work like clockwork. Like this year, by December 31st, this many number of people die. Some years they'll die more in December. Some years they'll linger for another few months and the deaths will go more on the next year. So you'll have fewer deaths the previous year. Some of that has to do with other respiratory viruses that typically kill elderly people. But again, that is the angel of death. That is, it's not dying early. That is their time to go. It's not a matter, you could have a senior who goes earlier and then you could have a senior that that's his time to go. And you see that, we talked about Kyle Lamb's amazing data in the United States that basically 2019 is the lowest death rate of any year that's an odd year. Typically, odd years um, have lower death rates than even years, which in itself shows you it's a pattern. Um, But 2019 was a remarkably low fatality year in America. So a lot of it is, it's not even a matter of people dying a few months early, which, which certainly is happening. Uh, maybe a few months early, but often they're actually dying later, so to speak. They lingered, statistically speaking, for a few months more, so this was their time to go. So what they basically show is, as we noted, Sweden had a a remarkably low um, flu season the last two years, more so than Norway, so they just had more people to die, and which is why nearly all of the deaths in Sweden are over 70. Um, and the average death rate is is like 81 or something, which again, it's remarkable. In America, life expectancy is what? 78. The average COVID death age is what? 78. It's funny, if you go to Nor- Sweden, it tracks with, Sweden has a slightly higher um, uh, more uh, life expectancy. You know, it's, it's a healthier people. Um, it's uh, also, you know, a higher percentage is white. Blacks seem to have a much lower life expectancy. America has a larger black population. There's there's a number of reasons for that. Um, less obesity, whatever. The point is that it tracks closely with the life expectancy. Of course, there's exceptions, but generally speaking, this is what's happening. Which is like I told you earlier in the show from the French study, a similar thing that they noted is that the, the third world countries that everyone seems to die by 65, they don't seem to have too many COVID deaths. And the countries where you have a life expectancy on average of 80, but you do have a significant number of people increasingly living into their 90s and even 100, they, they have a lot more deaths. So it's a similar concept. So they concluded here, all-cause mortality remained unaltered in Norway. In Sweden, the observed increase in all-cause mortality during COVID-19 was partly due to a lower-than-expected mortality preceding the epidemic, and the observed excess mortality was followed by a lower-than-expected mortality after the first COVID wave. This may suggest mortality displacement. That's all it is. So if you remember, Sweden experienced a lower-than-normal death rate than Norway in 2018-2019. So therefore, they had a higher death rate in that first wave in the spring. 
Then throughout the entire summer and early fall, they had a lower death rate than Norway. They had literally no deaths because it, 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 it ebbs and flows. And now they're experiencing a second wave. It's much milder than every other country because they have more herd immunity, but not complete herd immunity. Everyone's going to get it. Like, I love how they point out, you see, Sweden's getting it too. Uh, some of these red states that didn't have lockdowns are getting it. Yeah, but so did the states that do have lockdown. Like, you know, a remarkable observation is New Mexico. So everyone's pointing out, you see all these states where they weren't wearing masks, you know, South Dakota and Iowa and Wyoming and Utah. I mean, now most of them have it. And Montana, they have the spread. Like, you idiot. But for six months when they weren't wearing masks, they didn't have spread while all the New York and Illinois and those states did have it, even though they were wearing it. Like, they ignore that. And, and it's a seesaw. The reason they haven't now worse than New York is precisely because they had it much better. So they had less herd immunity. So when you have the strong November seasonal spread, which works like clockwork, you're going to have more people in that wave. That's your main first wave coinciding with the stronger seasonal spread. So you're going to get hit. You know who? It's precisely because there has nothing to do with the politics. It's low density versus high density states. It starts off with the high density, takes longer to get to the low density. But once it gets to them, they'll be worse than the high density because the high density already had three quarters or so herd immunity. I mean, it's just like a first grader could understand this. There's nothing, there's zero correlation with what you do. It just happens to be the low density states are more conservative. Urban, rural divide, right? I mean, so it, it coincides that way. Guess what's a low density population state? New Mexico. They have an extremely liberal governor. Alt left governor. They had the same pattern. They followed the trajectory of Wyoming, not of New York, even though they have the same politics of of New York, where they didn't get the wave before because it's a low-density population. Also, they didn't get the Mexico wave because you don't have uh, major ports of entry, unlike in Arizona, California, and, and Texas, so they barely got anything. And now it's their turn. I mean, these are basic things that, that, that aren't being articulated. Utterly insane. So there's a lot there. We haven't even scraped the surface with a lot of what we want to talk about. All this, the schools and everything, just utterly insane. What's going on here? But folks, I want to end off the show by playing... A clip. Okay? Now, this clip is something you're going to want to save because I fear, I fear very strongly that it's going to get taken off of YouTube. You see, there's a man named Michael, Michael Osterholm. Okay? Michael Osterholm. Now, this man has a resume, yay long epidemiologist, one of the preeminent you know, flu researchers, airborne transmission. He worked for FDA, DOD with biochemical warfare. I mean, this guy is top notch. 
He also happens to be Biden's top COVID advisor, who's barking all sorts of fascism now. I'm going to play for you two clips from an eight-minute video of him on June 12th. So this is not even February, March. This is very late into it. After the mass cult had already grown universal, he ridiculed the notion of mass. Now, he was... He was confident, he seemed to think, that form-fitted N95s work. Most research I've seen show that even those don't work, but that's immaterial because nobody is sitting and wearing them, and if everyone did for long periods of time, they would literally pass out. It wouldn't work. It's never going to happen. And he talks about surgical and cloth masks, and he totally rejects the notion. Like, this is not the type of thing, well, it was early on, maybe we didn't know... He speaks with deep-rooted principle and intellect and passion. This is not something that could change. Take a listen here. Unless you have a tight face fit, it's kind of like fixing three of the five screen doors in your submarine. You know, it just, it, it, the air just goes in the sides. It takes the path of least resistance. So when you blow out or blow in, the air is just all there. Well, if I'm in a room full of this virus and aerosols, I, it's not the front part of the mass that's doing this job. It's the tight face fit. And so um, I, I say, if you don't have an N95, you're, you're not protected. Um, can a cloth mask or a surgical mask reduce the likelihood? Well, let's look at it from two perspectives. If it's me, trying, I'm trying to protect myself. Um, there are some limited data that says it may reduce the risk, but let me just make a point here. If you're walking across an intersection and a semi comes along at 50 miles an hour and hits you as you're walking across, that's not good. But if you're walking across that same intersection and a Ford pickup comes by and hits you at 50 miles an hour, that's not good either. So merely reducing the size didn't stop the outcome from happening that both did. And so all the data we would have say at this point that that just masking of itself with a cloth mask or a surgical mask surely may reduce the number of particles you put out, big particles, or the big particles that get in, but it's the little particles that are coming along the sides that are the real problem. And so I'm, I'm telling you, you know, I would throw the kitchen sink at this thing if I thought that it would make a difference. Uh, masks are not a major issue. And by the way, in 1918, there were actually some very exhaustive studies done on masks. After that, and John Barry, the historian who we work with closely, will tell you not one of them found that they made any difference. Number two is, just think about this, common sense. This, this is a group of common sense people here. The area of the world where geographically we have the, most high, the highest frequency of mass wearing is just a social cultural event was in China, Hubei province, China, in November and December of last year. Did that mask wearing have any impact on that emergence of that horrible, horrible uh, city on fire situation? I mean, that was one where we had virtually everyone wearing masks publicly. Didn't make a difference. Folks, you tell me if that principle could change. It says very clearly, they don't work. They don't work. Then he goes on to say something very profound, which now applies to what he himself is doing about number one, the fact that they're actually a false sense of security. So if you are immunocompromised, I know a lot of people like that. Kidney disease, heart disease, diabetes, they have all of them, and they would just put on their mask and go indoors. Well, dude, that, that ain't doing anything for you. And number two, 
if government could just lie to you based on emotion and false data and censorship, what else could they do for, the, for public health? Michael Osterholm, again, this is Biden's chief COVID advisor. Take a listen. I only say this because if you want to wear a mask, go ahead. Feel free. I worry, though, that people who are at risk of having severe disease will take that mask and now assume a level of protection that they don't really have and then put themselves in harm's way in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so there's a downside to that. Finally, I just find the social political pressure. You know, today, if you don't wear a mask, oh, my God, how what a bad person you are. So, you know, uh, and, and unfortunately, we've now come to make judgments, not on science, but on basically emotions. And I worry about that because this one's not kind of a big one. But what if we start saying, okay, all heavy people, we're going to do this to you because you're at risk of getting this disease more. Or all people who are of this age, we're going to do this to you because you're at higher risk. And then say, well, you know, I'm using the same basis for making those recommendations that I made for the mass. Maybe it will help. And at some point, you just as a I'm a scientist. I'm just a poor, lowly scientist. I'm just sitting here telling you, these are the data. You know, you make a decision how you decide. And I'm telling you right now that I, 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 the masking is not an issue. Did you hear that? This, he is saying, imagine what they could do to people, obese people. You're a public safety threat. Here's what we need to do. We're limiting your food intake. And by the way, that would actually be you know, rooted in, in, in science. I mean, that, that is real. Obesity is a real problem. Whereas the notion, I mean, if you cut back on your calorie intake, you cut back on the type of food you eat, that is healthier. You can't deny that. Whereas these measures are bogus, voodoo, nothing, except for the collateral damage, which is enormous. But folks, at some point, we need to move beyond the intellectual case. We we need boots on the ground because it doesn't work. You see it doesn't work. You see the very guys pushing this said what we're saying. They know it's true. You think Osterholm thinks you could stop a respiratory virus? Listen to that eight-minute clip. No. He knows this stuff. It's about power and control and herd mentality. It's sick. And it's got to stop. And it's time we put an end to it. Again, this is much more powerful than the election results. This is something we have to do even if Trump would wind up miraculously winning. And in fact, there is an avenue with Biden winning that would give us a little bit more juice, at least in the red states, more willingness to reject this if it's coming from him rather than coming from the Trump administration, which let's face it, it's been coming from that administration until now. It's time we form our own social compact that restores the principles of that Mayflower Compact, of the Declaration, of the respective states' Declaration of Rights. You know, Massachusetts, that first colony, that first colony that fought back, risked their lives. Article 1 of their Constitution, 1780, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. It is the right as well as the duty of all men in society publicly and at stated seasons to worship 
the supreme being, the great creator and preserver of the universe. And no subject shall be hurt, molested, or restrained in his person, liberty, or estate for worshiping God in the manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience. You should read this stuff sometimes. There's a lot more there. The State Bill of Rights, because that's really where the Federal Bill of Rights was taken from. And these truths were self-evident. Well, folks, we still hold these truths to be self-evident. If you do, it's time to fight back. It's time to stop being quiet and, you know, sheepish, bashful. It's time to be loud and proud. If it's a school, if it's a friend, if it's a business, get in their faces. I'm not even saying to rebel. I'm just saying to make your voice heard. Because when you speak to most people, they recognize what we're saying, but everyone's scared. But if everyone gets together, we could overthrow this. Community by community, county by county, and eventually state by state. Folks, as always, thanks for listening. Keep yourself armed and defended with your We the People holster. Keep up on the true news here at Blaze TV. Follow me at RM Conservative as long as I'm still on Twitter. It's kind of a miracle I'm not thrown off. Minimum Speakeasy, our Facebook page, until we can find a new platform that doesn't get censored. And may God guide us in our next steps. <laughs>